This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 24th, the Trump Turkey and Teens edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 8, Sam 5, and Wally 3. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is 11, and Harper, who is 9, and who finally got her braces off. Oh, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you, too, and to Harper, and farewell and good riddance to her braces. That was fast. Kids, uh, yeah. braces are a reportedly, thing these days, I feel like. Reportedly, she has to get them twice in her life. That's huh. what the orthodontist said after he looked at our credit report. So I missed the last episode because it was election day and I was working on that. Um, so how did that go? And also, how are you feeling about uh, the episode we did a few weeks prior celebrating the coming Hillary victory? It seems like it worked out great all around. Yeah, it seems like uh, Hillary's president now. And um, I mean, I haven't read anything or looked at a newspaper or TV, but I just assume that's the case. Uh, what could have gone wrong? Um, we don't. I don't know. Do we owe you guys an apology for that episode? I just really don't know. So email us and let us know what you think. Uh, on uh, no, sh- we have not gotten like angry, angry, angry responses about it other than from three different moms who are on the podcast have emailed me angry because they feel they jinxed it. So maybe we'll just blame it on them. That's a good plan. Uh, yeah. On today's show, we will talk about the thing we didn't want to talk about two weeks ago, which is Donald Trump. Uh, we'll be joined by two great guests, Emily Bazelon and Dwayne Betts, to discuss what we've been talking about with our kids in the wake of Trump's victory. Then Dan will interview Kelly Freeman Craig, the writer and director of the new teen movie The Edge of Seventeen, which I unfortunately was not able to see, which is why Dan is going it alone on that interview. 
Plus, triumphs. It's really and, great. You'll love it. That's what all the reviews say. Uh, plus, triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call about kids and cell phones. And for our Slate Plus segment, uh, Emily Bazelon will stick around and we will pander to Thanksgiving and share some things we are thankful for. Pandering to the big Thanksgiving <laughs> lobby. Uh, if you like listening to us, you will love liking us. Visit our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Uh, on that page right now, we're discussing this week's episode topics. We're posting links to great parenting stories. Uh, and we're all making fun of the Oshkosh Bagash ad that I was in when I was 11. Makes me wish I was a kid again. Oshkosh Bagash, gosh, Bagash. It's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. We would be so grateful for you to give us a like. Also, some weeks we plug Slate Plus and some weeks we're just busy and we don't. But this week I feel a particular responsibility to ask you guys to please join Slate Plus if you haven't. I'm not going to try to sell you on all the cool stuff that comes along with being a Plus member. Uh, I'll just say that journalism is expensive to produce and good journalism is very expensive to produce. And my colleagues and I feel more responsibility than ever to produce great journalism. And I hope you'll support us if you're able uh, please go to slate.com slash plus to sign up for a limited time. A one-year membership is just $35, so get it while it's cheap. Okay, let's move on to triumphs and fails. Dan, you go first. Uh, I've got a fail this week. My fail is that somehow I have raised an 11-year-old human being who cannot own an item without losing it almost immediately. So Lyra got glasses the other week. Uh, they were very cute. She was having trouble seeing the blackboard, or I guess the smart board. They don't have blackboards. And we got her an eye test, and she needed glasses, and we bought her glasses. And a week after she got them, she lost them. She lost them somewhere at school. It's not like she goes that many places, but somehow they disappeared off her face and no longer exist anywhere on Earth. Uh, every day we would send her to school with like this, with like a reminder note in her lunchbox to look in a different classroom or to look in the lost and found. And every day she would come home saying, oh, I didn't have a chance to look, or I didn't remember to look, or I looked, but I didn't see a lost and found anywhere. So now, uh, last week, Alia bought Lyra a really good waterproof jacket because we are about to move to a place where we're going to be out in the wind and rain a lot. Windy Willington. Uh, this jacket was a hundred dollars. That is crazy. I know it was a great jacket that she should be able to use for years, years and years and years throughout her teen years. The jacket arrived in the mail on Monday on Friday. She lost it. <laughs> and then I also lost it. I completely <laughs> lost it. <laughs> so on Monday this of this week, I sent her to school with very specific instructions. I said, I will meet you at school, Lyra, at four o'clock to help you look through every single lost and found and classroom in which you do anything over the course of a day. So I get there at four and we search the entire school and we find two other jackets of hers that I didn't even remember that she had lost in two separate lost and founds, two of them but not her nice new orange waterproof shell that we got her for New Zealand. Also, we did not find her glasses. So look, I uh, I was absent-minded when I was a kid. I'm still absent-minded. I have this like like ritualized padding of my pockets that I do whenever I get up from a chair because I have like trained myself not to lose things. But this is like above and beyond normal kid losing things, I feel like. It is like a remarkable skill she has, a superpower <laughs> for losing things. She's better at it than anyone is at anything. And we've worked with her on making checklists, on organizational strategies and schemes, on self-reminders. Nothing works. I told her that there needs to be a consequence for losing expensive things. 
She, of course, uh, with memories of our positive reinforcement experiments from this spring, said, well, that won't work, Dad. You should reward me when I don't lose expensive things. And I was like, Lyra, holding on to your possessions is just life. That is, that's like not even a task. It's just what you do. Anyway, Allison, what should the consequence be? I'm think- I mean, it's going to be screen time, right? We take away screen time. That's literally all she cares mm. about on the face of the earth. So, Is that I all think she cares about? Be- no, go ahead. I yes. thought you were, a- I thought well, you were asking. I, mean, I can't. No, I can't think of anything else, but uh, but like, but how should we do it? Like I was thinking, like make it an actual like monetary connection, like two hours of screen time for every dollar that a thing she loses costs. So that would be like eight days total where she would have no screen time uh, over Thanksgiving break. And that would be perfect because that would be a punishment that also punishes me. So I was going to actually, should I, how should I do it? Yeah, I was going to make two suggestions and, and I don't know if this will work on her, but the, I would say either she has to pay for the jacket. Does she have a bunch of money saved up and does she care about money? She doesn't care about money. She doesn't care about money. Okay, so maybe that's not no. great. Does she ever want things clothes wise? Like, does she say like, please buy me these cool sneakers or please buy me this sweater or whatever? No, she into no. Fashion one of the reasons that we're so angry about this is that getting her to shop with you is like fucking torture. Oh. And so just the act of getting her to a store and choosing this jacket and trying it on was like a week long ordeal that no one wants to repeat. Hmm. Then I don't know what to tell you because I was going to say like have her like not let you know she can't get the cool new sweater that she wants. If she, she can't doesn't hang want on to the things She just that... wants screen time. That's all she wants. All right, then I guess screen time. I mean, that's fine. Right. I guess screen time. I just feel like it should like it should, it, the the monetary value is important. Like she doesn't care about. It's not just her. My kids are like this too. But like she doesn't care about the money that you spend on things, which is like an important right. thing for her to learn. Well, maybe having eight days of no screens will really impart on her. Or maybe she has to work it off. Like it maybe you come cheaper. up. Maybe you come up with some scheme that's like, you know, chores are worth a certain amount of money and she has to work off the $100 doing dishes and stuff like that. That's what I that's think That's a pretty good do. idea. The only problem is that do. then we won't have any dishes because she'll drop them all. And you're going to cave on screen time because you're going to be, like you said, holiday time <laughs> and you should do the, you should make her work. Make her work. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm sure I've committed several fails and uh, managed several triumphs in the four weeks since we last talked, but life is a blur and I can't remember any of them. Uh, so I, <laughs> I found a fail that I did this morning. Um... Thank as God. usual, yeah. <laughs> There's always one to pull out of my back pocket. So as usual, I was rushing in the morning. Harry had already left for school. John was driving Wally to preschool, and I was racing around the house uh, like a loon trying to get showered and do the dishes and walk velvet and get out the door in time to get Sam to the bus stop. So I was losing it, like you lost it. Uh, I was mm-hmm. losing it and shouting from the bathroom like, Sam, you need a sweatshirt. It's cold. Get a sweatshirt. And Sam, find your shoes. I need you to find your shoes. And as I'm doing this whole tense morning routine thing, Sam keeps popping his head into the bathroom with a book and pointing to a word and asking me, like, does this say good or is this word track? And I'm getting, like, really annoyed at him, even though obviously, like, he's five and he's learning to read, which I should encourage and actually take a second and be like, that is the word track. Uh, and I'm just, like, you know, sort of screaming at him, like, yes, that's that says good. Now go find your shoes. We don't have time. And he comes back in and points to a word and says, does this say dumbass? And... <laughs> Without looking at the book, I said, what do you say? What did you say, Sam? And he says, again, does this say dumbass? And I put down the hairdryer and I said, Sam, that is not an okay word. Go to your room right now until I time, tell you it's time to go. And he gets very upset and says, Mom, I'm just trying to read. And I like, boom, 
go to your room. Uh, cut to a few minutes later when I'm finally ready to go and a little calmer and we actually have a few minutes to spare and I go to get him out of his room and he's still holding the book and he points to the word and says, I'm so sorry, Mom. I didn't know this was a bad word. And I look at the word and it's Thomas. He was not saying dumbass. <laughs> he was saying Thomas, <laughs> which he can read. Uh, so well, I, I hope he learned an all. important lesson about enunciation. <laughs> The end. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> um, here's a question I have, which is not exactly exculpatory. This is definitely a fail. But was he ex- asking these questions because he really, truly was passionately interested at that exact moment in reading this book? Or because he, like Harper, for example, is very good at suddenly evincing an interest in something he knows you like when he wants to stall doing things you want him to do? He definitely does that, but I think this morning he really was like, for some reason, interested in reading. But I don't, you know, I yeah. don't take offense at your assumption because he definitely does that sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's a great book he's reading about dumbass the tank engine. So. <laughs> we need to get him into some speech therapy. <laughs> uh, that's a good fail. Good fail. Good job. Thank you. All right, moving on. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the days right after Donald Trump won the election, several pieces came out, including one by my beloved co-host, Dan Coyce, about how to talk to your kids about Trump's victory and Hillary's loss. I couldn't bring myself to read any of them. In fact, John and I never ended up sitting down and having a big talk with our kids. But in the past few weeks, our family has addressed the election results and state of our nation in small ways. And things keep popping up. Harry will hear something in passing on the radio and ask me about it. Sam will tell me things that kids are saying at school. So I really want to know how other families are handling this new reality, not just how everyone told their kids that Trump won, but how parents are thinking about what they tell their children about their country and fellow Americans now. Joining us to talk about this is our pal Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Slate's Political Gab Fest, who has two boys, ages 13 and 16, and Dwayne Betts, who is an author and Lehman Fellow at the New Haven Public Defender's Office and also the father of two boys, five and nine. Hey, guys. Welcome. Hey, Hey, thank you. So first, maybe it would be useful to backtrack a bit and just share the initial conversation you guys had with your kids the morning after the election. Actually, so it's funny because um, Halloween was the week before. And at my son's school, one person went for Halloween as Donald Trump dressed in prison garb. And the other person went as Donald Trump dressed in a suit as the president. And these were like two third and fourth graders or fifth and sixth graders. And so, you know, my son was aware of the election. He was aware of Trump and he was also aware of varying ideas about Trump. But he had no expectation that he would get elected. And the next morning when I told him that Trump had won and I was the only one who stayed up all night to find out the results, they thought I was playing a practical joke. (laughs) And And it took a minute for them to um, 
to actually grapple with the idea that it was possible. And of course, they don't know as much about Trump as me, but you know what they do know, having like seen some of the news clips or heard me and their mom talk about it, they just thought that this was something that wasn't in the realm of possibility. And they were stunned. I don't know. I think they're still figuring out what it means for it to be possible. Emily, how about you? Your kids are, are older. What kind of conversations are you guys having? Yeah, well, my kids got really into following 538 in particular and somewhat the upshot. They're interested in data analysis. They kind of came at it through sports. And so if anything, they got too absorbed before the election. And they actually were not surprised that Trump won. Um, but they were upset because of what my younger son um, talked about. Is he just kept saying that he just felt sad for all the people who feel like they have reason to be afraid of this presidency. Um, so on the one hand, I felt like that was a real sign of his level of empathy. And I feel glad that both of my kids have that sense. And on the other hand, I think it is a little overwhelming. And so at first, my husband and I thought like, okay, we everyone in the house needs a break from politics, especially them. And that lasted for a few days. Now I feel that my kids are following what's happening again with a lot of curiosity. And I guess that's a good thing. Um, but I also wonder about making sure that it's just not too much for them. And so I'm mostly trying to check how much I talk, for example, how much I bring up things like, you know, the anti-Semitism of some of the white nationalists associated with Trump and his campaign. It's one thing for them to come to me with things they're seeing, but I'm trying really hard not to put on to them my own anxieties. So this election result for me has changed the way I think about my job as a journalist. And I, mm -hmm. I'm i wondering, does it change the way you guys think about your job as parents or about your family's role in the community? Um, I don't know. I, had, I hadn't thought. I, I will say this, right? So my son is nine. The first time I voted in an election, I was with him with a Nat Turner T-shirt on voting for President Obama. And for both my nine-year-old and my five-year-old, their entire understanding of politics has in some way been like shaped and defined by the fact that President Obama has been their president. And so they've always sort of looked at the highest office and, and not expected to be there, but recognizing the possibility of them being able to be there. Now, and so because that was true as a parent, you know, we could talk about racism, we could talk about prejudice, we could talk about social justice. And since I was in law school, they were around these conversations. But like as a parent, I didn't have the need to really address the history of the United States in a way that I do now. And even if I don't consciously do it, I think I've become more aware of the fact that, you know, as, as, as their father, I need to make them aware that the life they live and the privilege that they have one, isn't guaranteed, but two, isn't the norm in a way that three years ago, you know, although I thought about it, I, I didn't consciously think that I had to do work to make sure they recognize that their level of, of, of sort of access to opportunity isn't the norm. Emily, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just think it's like a redoubling of purpose for 
everyone to make sure that we're helping to instill the values we want our kids to have. We've been talking a lot about um, state and local government. So my older son actually campaigned for a on his own, went door knocking. He has, has a class he's actually taking on 21st century democracy right now. And one of the assignments was to go um, knock on doors for a candidate. So he did that in a town next to the town we live in. And the guy, and he did it over several weekends. And the guy he cam- campaigned for won by 14 votes. Whoa. <laughs> so that was kind of awesome. I mean, yeah. it was this sense of like, okay, you know, local organizing and efforts do matter. And um, it was a kind of antidote to the helplessness, I think, that my kids felt in the face of the national election. So I don't know, maybe that's the sort of, um, you know, alternative way of thinking about politics and how our government is structured that is also important to be thinking about right now. I like that. It's also very practical. Uh, yes. So <laughs> we're hearing a lot in the news about um, about a, a perceived, at least, uptick in um, in hate crimes and racial slurs, especially in schools, especially among like dumb jerk kids. Um, how do you two? And I'm interested in hearing from you too, Allison. How do you all think your kids would respond? to seeing in the classroom or in the schoolyard some kind of racial injustice or cultural injustice or racial slur, um, how do you do you think they would ha- have it in them to stick up for someone? Do you have is that something you've talked about with them specifically? Or do you think there's there are other lessons you've taught them that can help them through a situation like that? Well, you know, I wrote a book about bullying. So you have to pity my kids. They've been getting the upstander lesson, like shoved down their throats for many years. And the way that we talk about that, and I don't, I feel like they now don't even need me to say it, but just this idea that you look out for people who are vulnerable, that's part of your job in society. And it doesn't mean that you have to be someone's best friend, but it does mean that you have a kind of a real responsibility to be civil to everyone, but sometimes to go beyond that if you see someone who needs help. I don't think my kids have been super tested on that front. I mean, there's there's nothing like the kinds of incidents you're talking about going on in their school that, that they or anyone at the school knows about. But they're hearing about those kinds of incidents. And I think... Um, Again, it's this uh, question of reinforcing values and and ideas about like moral fiber and character so that if you're in a situation where this happens in a small or a large way, because often the challenges kids face in these dimensions are not like the big swastika graffiti, but something much smaller. And, you know, you want your kids if possible to do the right thing in the moment, but even if they don't do that, to think about it afterwards and talk about it with you. Um, So that all seems like something we need to be, again, thinking about even more right now. Yeah, and I think my son's, uh, at least my oldest, you know, he, since he knows that I've been in prison, um, he he, he has had to deal with this in the past in terms of me talking to him about the stigma that I deal with and the challenges that I deal with. And I told him that when he was a kindergartner, um, he found out that I'd been to prison and it was like this tragic conversation didn't work out that well the first time. But the second time it came up was when he was telling me that it was a kid with special needs in his class and people didn't want to be the kid's friend. And he was like, I don't think I want to be the kid's friend either. And I was like, I totally understand. You know, I've been to prison. A lot of people don't want to be my friend. 
And so, you know, a lot of opportunities I don't get. And I'm not going to blame them for thinking that I'm a horrible person because I made this mistake. And I was kind of hammering it up. And um, (laughs) he stopped and he thought about it. And he was like, you know, I think I'm going to be such and such his friend. And then that was the end of it. And and it, it just so happened that the kid had some gifts and some talents. And, you know, he painted like Basquiat. And I was able to, when we went to the art gallery, to look at the Basquiat piece. And I was like, what does that look like? And he was like, oh, that looks like such and such piece. And so it was some other things that happened that reinforced this idea that people are special in ways that you don't always get. And if you don't, like, protect people, stand up for people, befriend people in difficult circumstances, you run the risk of shutting sort of that potential and that possibility down. Um, and so I hope, honestly, that, that because he's had those experiences, if it comes up again, he'll have to deal with it. And being a black kid in a school that's, that's, that's predominantly not black, I think he already is aware of what it means to, like, not be in a majority in a setting in a way in which at nine I wasn't aware of because I grew up basically in a black belt where everybody around me was black in school my whole life. I think that he's already been forced to like answer some of those questions along racial lines and along what does it mean to build friendships with people who are different, knowing people from different countries at five, six, seven, eight years old, I think has given him at least something of what he'll need to recognize the importance of differences and the importance of standing up for others. Allison, what about you? Uh, sometimes I think we're like honest with our kids to a fault. In fact, after Trump won, I kind of regretted how much I had told my kids beforehand about what I <laughs> thought about him or, you know, Uh, especially given that some of their family members voted for him and I'm struggling with how to handle that. Um, But, you know, I grew up (laughs) I grew up with my parents, um, my wonderful parents, uh, I think raising me to think that there was um, anti-Semitism everywhere. And I really like rejected that and like strongly um, objected to that notion and never felt it in my life. And I think you know, it's been like personally surprising to me to see how visible that's been. But I have held back from talking to my kids about it because I still, I guess, feel like they are not um, at real risk. And there are so many other people who are at real risk uh, in a, in the Trump era. And so we focused a lot more on talking about, you know, um, yeah, the immigrant kids in their class or just in general, like minorities who are you know, like legitimately scared and have um, true threats against them. And we've talked about those in like small ways and big ways. And, you know, it was like kind of an amazing uh, timing that the Saturday after Trump won, we were Harry and I were scheduled to go uh, volunteer at the soup kitchen that we've been going to. And he was complaining and didn't want to go as he, you know, as he does and whatever. He's just a kid. I'm not like annoyed at him for complaining about it but we had a conversation about like now more than ever it's like really important for us to be good people and to like help people who need it and to be good neighbors and uh and we talked about in the context of trump and he was like okay and like (laughs) it really you know for just that day i'm not saying he's gonna be wake up every morning um being selfless but like i think that was that was like the ideal family activity for for us to have that weekend and i i feel like you know i hope this feeling I hope this feeling remains uh, in our family that, like, that's a huge priority now. Yeah, it's a notably different conversation, sort of the the more privileged your family is and the more – the further away your family is from the very particular classes of people who are likely to get targeted uh, in, you know, should a Trump administration go as far south as many, worry it will be. And so in our family where we are very – 
in this particular circumstance, we have the luxury of like feeling like probably will come out okay, uh, whatever happens. Um, but that just has meant that we've tried to really stress to our kids that it we have a responsibility, as does everyone, but we in particular have a responsibility to do everything we can to stand up for people who need help uh, in the coming four years and forever. But we, I mean, we've really stressed that with our kids, and I have no idea how in the heat of the moment on the playground they would respond to something, but I hope that they would at least flash back to that conversation and either do something or feel guilty afterwards if they didn't. I guess, I, I guess I'd rather they did something. I was... So I was at work, and, and I think even the sort of stories about my son don't really capture, I think, what this has meant because we haven't dealt with it that way. But I came to work a couple of days after election, and my supervisor and attorney told me, you know, my son was distraught when he found out that Trump won. And the question he asked me was, will my friends get deported? Now, you know, this kid plays soccer a lot, and he lives in a relatively diverse community, and he got a lot of kids around him who are the children of immigrants. And we don't know anything about their immigration status, but the election made this kid fear, like 10, 11-year-old kid, fear that his classmates might get deported. And to get the child to go to sleep, my, my friend had to tell him, listen, if anything happens, if they're threatened with deportation, if they get sent to a deportation center, I will quit my job and become an immigration attorney. And so in some ways, I, I think that even in my own life, I downplay the real fear that people feel based on the kind of people that they're close to and the experiences of the lives of people that they're close to. And, and I don't know what the impact of even having to deal with that will be on his son, but I hope that it makes him think about, like, the power and agency that, you know, being involved gives you, but also about the kind of trauma that you experience when you end up being the one fearing for, you know, deportation or your friend's deportation. Yeah, I, I think those are all really good points. I was thinking, Allison, when you were talking before about anti-Semitism, I have a lot of the same feelings you do, but I also feel like being Jewish in the wake of this election is a point of shared, um, not the same level of vulnerability, but a shared sense of like um, risk and, and what happens in a world in which we don't protect each other. And so I've been thinking a little bit differently about it and what I tell my kids. I don't want them to overemphasize their own risk and persecution because you're right. But I also feel like, you know, one thing this election has exposed is that people who are racist and prejudiced also despise Jews. And it's not so bad for my kids to understand that and see it as a kind of point of commonality and solidarity with people who are really at greater risk. Yeah. Well, it's also been, I think, a very constructive reminder and lesson that there are there is an entire there are multiple cultures in the United States that bear with them from their history, uh, long histories of persecution uh, or even of genocide, and that these and that knowing about these stories from wherever they come from, including from from your family if you're Jewish or the Jewish people in your life if you're not, is a useful way of framing this, uh, especially for older kids. All right, listeners, we would love to hear about the conversations you're having uh, with your children. So come to our Facebook page and share. That would be great. Thank you so much, Emily and Dwayne. It's been great talking to you guys. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. You are welcome. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, moving on to our next segment. We all remember the great teen movies that defined our adolescences. Pretty in Pink, Say Anything, 10 Things I Hate About You. I'm really hopeful that for many teenagers in 2016, their defining movie will be Edge of 17, which premiered this past weekend. It stars Haley Steinfeld as high school junior Nadine, who's already navigating a hopeless crush, teenage self-loathing, and mixed feelings about her own virginity. She enters full-on existential crisis mode when her best and only friend falls for her fucking annoyingly perfect older brother. (laughs) It's the first film from writer-director Kelly Freeman Craig, and it is so smart and funny and sincere, and is the dad of a girl who is right on the edge of, well, she's on the edge of 12. Uh, I was still really taken by the movie's view of teenage friendship and teenage sexuality. So poor Allison, my co-host, missed the screening, so she can't join in on this conversation, but I'm really happy to be joined by Kelly Freeman Craig, who's the writer-director of Edge of 17, to talk with me about it. Hi, Kelly. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So one thing I, I immediately liked about this movie is that it is, you know, it's full of romantic shenanigans in the way that mm-hmm. any movie about teens is going to be. But the, it seemed to me that the most important relationship in it, the one that we worry about the most while we're watching it, is between Nadine and her best friend, Krista. You know, what do you think that mm-hmm. friendship means to each of them at the beginning of that movie? And, and what's the crisis? Well, for Nadine, her best friend is really is really her sort of one lifeline. You know, the one person who who really gets her and is there for her and 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 loves her despite herself. You know, and partic- and and there's particular weight on that relationship because she lost, you know, she lost her father, who was the other person, like the first person who really you know, who really understood her and felt like, you know, he was on her team and, and got her. And so when she loses him, it's like all of that gets put on to her relationship with her best friend. So I think it's, it, it carries even more weight because of that. And Nadine is a kid who, you know, all teenagers sort of think they're alone in the universe, but Nadine is a kid who seems to really almost intentionally position herself as alone in the universe. So the idea of the one person who gets her seems even more important to her than maybe it would even to any other teen. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, that's a lot of what her journey is about, you know, is, um, dealing with those feelings of just, yeah. Feeling like you're, you're all alone in your pain, you know, (laughs) like everybody else, (laughs) um, everybody else has it all figured out except you, you know, Look, I don't want to take up a ton of your time, but I'm going to kill myself. 
I just thought that someone should know. I don't really know how this works. I'm probably going to jump off uh, an overpass in front of a semi. So, or a U-Haul, maybe just on a bus. I'm not going to be a dick and make people watch. But it has to be big. It's got to be so big that it just, done, kills me. Lights out. Because if it just maims me, and I'm like, well then, how is that good for anyone? Then I got to find a nurse to smother me. How am I going to get across smothering if I'm... We don't need to get caught up in the minutiae. I just thought that an adult, so you should know. Uh, you interviewed a lot of teenagers while you were writing the screenplay. Did you hear a lot from them about the importance of their like close girl friendships and the way those friendships made their lives better? Uh, yeah, I, I found that those relationships were the most important relationships in their lives. Um, really, like they had such a big bearing on, on identity and those and crises surrounding friendships were in a lot of ways, the most destructive emotionally. Um, I mean like that friend breakup is so much worse than any breakup with a boy would be. Yeah. Way, way, way worse. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because a romantic breakup on some level you kind of expect unless you're good, you know, cause you don't expect, you're going to marry this person, you know, when you're right. that age. So right. you expect it to come around at some point, but a friend, you really expect to be there through, you know, through thick and thin. And so, so when that relationship goes away, it's a real, a real identity crisis. How do uh, Nadine and Krista think about and talk about sex, like the possibility of sex and the role that sex plays in their lives when this movie starts, like what role does it play for them? Well, with Nadine, there's a, there's, there's a real curiosity. There's a curiosity about it. And, and she's also pretty bold and, and kind of flippant about it and acts like, acts like it's not a big deal. But in the way that it's really easy to do when like it doesn't play a part in your life. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she tries to be sort of cool and whatever about it. But the truth is, it's, it's the hugest deal ever. And I think the other part about it, particularly for, for the main character, for Nadine, is she, she's getting a sexual connection confused with an emotional connection, which I think is something that is, that, that is, is, is easy to get confused. You know, on, yeah. on some level, when she's, when she's aching for that sexual connection, what she's really saying is, I want somebody to see me and know me and, and to have, a, a, a real moment with somebody, you know, and she gets the two things all sort of tangled up and confused. Did that come at least in part from those teenagers that you interviewed? I mean, were you hearing from girls that that was something that had happened to them? Yeah, that was, that came out of a lot of the interviews. There was, um, I understood that on some level it was important to them to have the experience of sexually connecting with somebody like to have to, it was important to them to, to explore that and also sort of keep up with the Joneses about that. You know what I mean? Like if their friends were doing it, then it sort of, then they sort of felt like, well, I should probably be doing this and be exploring what this feels like. And at the same time, not sure about who or how far or 
maybe even whether they really wanted to or they just felt like this is something I should be experiencing at this particular age. I'm I'm late experiencing it or I'm a little too early experiencing it. You know, it's just all it's all complicated and it and and I found it also has to do has a lot to do with where your friends are on on the spectrum. And so I always when I was writing Nadine, I always imagined that her best friend Krista had lost her virginity like a year ago. So she right. was kind of trying to catch up, you know? Right. And it gets even tougher when, when, you know, Krista gets in this relationship with Nadine's older brother, which is like a trauma for Nadine. But one thing that I loved about the movie is that for Krista, it's just like, he's a really good boyfriend. Like she has yes. this nice relationship with a nice boy and the sex seems to like be an important part of it. And it's, yes. that's not, that's only traumatic because Nadine makes it traumatic. But that yes. is like the kind of just like very healthy, good relationship between teenagers that I feel like you never see in movies. Yeah. Yeah, you don't. It, it's interesting. You don't see that. And that does exist. So Kira Sedgwick in the movie plays Nadine's mom. Um, mm-hmm. She like clearly 100% does not understand her weirdo daughter. And she struggles mm-hmm. to figure out like how much rope to give her. Um, what did the girls that you interviewed tell you about? their moms and that relationship and, and how they navigated that. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting was how many of them understood their parents as people with their own flaws and struggles and wrapped up in their own problems. You know, it's interesting, and and actually how young they got that. Because I actually, I remember not really realizing my parents were people, you know, uh, until a little later. I think it was when I went out to college that I kind of was like, oh, you don't know everything, (laughs) you know? Like, you're just a person trying to figure (laughs) figure out what's going on and find your way, and you're just kind of stabbing in the dark like the rest of us, you know? My husband had any idea what I was going to have to deal with. I love how you refer to him as your husband. He is my husband. You can run off and get a new husband. What he is is my dad. Can't you just say that occasionally? Fine. We're not talking about him right now. Because it's just too upsetting. It's too hard and too sad and it gives me a cluster headache. I know. Oh my God. You have no compassion. Actually, I'm just bored because I know everything you're going to do before you do it. Sure you do. Oh, you don't believe me? No, I don't. I'm going to write down the next thing you're going to say to me. I'm not going to play your little, little games, games Nadine. Nadine. But they, the, the, the teenagers I talked to got that so early on. You know, they they got where their parents were struggling financially, in their marriages. There was really a sense of, I was amazed how much they understood about their parents' problems and psychology and and all of that. And, And also how they felt burdened by the weight of that. And so, um... So it's important to me to, to, to have that play a part in her relationship with her mom 
mm-hmm. where where in some scenes she's trying to hold up her mother when she really needs to be held up. You know, um, that scene in the car after she leaves the party, she really needs to be able to just break down with somebody. But her mom needs to be able to break down with somebody too at the exact same moment. And she ends up being her mother's support instead of getting that support. And I found that to be a consistent theme when I was interviewing all these different teenagers. I think that will feel really familiar to a lot of parents and a lot of uh, kids and ex-kids. So the movie is so great. It is called Edge of 17. Uh, Listeners, please go see it. Make your teenager see it with her friends. I mean, don't make her see it with you. That would be horrible. Uh, Thank you, Kelly Freeman Craig, for chatting with me. Thank you so much. All right, moving on. Each episode, we try and answer a question from you, our beloved listeners. Often we fail, but sometimes we succeed. If you've got a question you would like us to succeed or fail at answering, give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Today's question is from Diana. Take it away, Diana. My, uh, I'm a mom of my son who's 10 and my daughter who's 4. My son asked me the other day, can I get a cell phone? All of my friends have cell phones. Mentally, I thought 12 was a good age, and so I was caught off guard. To stall for time, I had a brilliant idea that uh, I would ask him to write me a persuasive essay about why he needed a cell phone, why he wanted a cell phone, and that all the other kids at school was not a valid argument. He typically writes five, six, ten-page stories all the time, so I thought this would be a good way for him to channel his energy and allow me to stall for time. He's now said he's changed his mind and doesn't want a phone. I feel like I've messed up a little bit, and I also kind of wanted to ask, what age do most families allow their kid to have a cell phone? Thanks so much. Bye. Diana, I don't think you messed up. I feel like that was a great, like, that was not only a great stall for time, it was also a great way to sort of crystallize how much this kid really wanted the phone that he sort of had absently told you he wanted. Um, I like that. And I don't think that you have messed that situation up at all. Um, If the kid, if your son really, really wants a phone, he will, you know, he will let you know. He will not stop pestering you. And so if he has stopped pestering you for even a moment, you should embrace this opportunity. But Allison, uh, in your neighborhood, when do kids start getting phones? So my feeling about phones is that there's not like one right age. Uh, it kind of depends on where you live and what the phone's being used for and how much freedom you give your kids at a certain age. So uh, we don't have a landline, for instance. So when we are ready to leave Harry uh, uh, home alone, either we're going to have to get a landline or he's going to need a phone. Um, also, kids in our uh, town often walk to town alone at age nine or ten. And if we decide to let Harry do that as well, then he's going to get a phone maybe earlier than I otherwise would have given him one um, because I want to be able to contact him. I think also, like, it kind of does depend on what the social norms are. I'm not saying parents should, like, cave to what all the kids, other kids and other parents are doing. But, um, you know, if there is healthy socializing, for instance, happening on WhatsApp uh, that, like, the whole class is in on and your kid isn't, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's that that might force me to think about doing it earlier than I otherwise would have. My only red line, and I don't even know how red it is, is that I don't want to get a phone just for the games. Like, that's not the phone path I want to start down. 
Uh, I also think, last thing, and then Dan, you can say what age you think is appropriate, that a really good way uh, to start is to talk to other parents, uh, your your kids' friends' parents, and kind of set up guidelines together. It's not that you have to follow other parents or cave to peer pressure, but I think it's probably much easier to enforce phone rules if you're part of a group of parents who are telling their kids the same thing, which kind of takes away some of the ne- negative social pressure involved in all of this. So that's one one thing I, I will do when I when we start. What age for you, Kois? The correct answer is 11. (laughs) Aren't you amazed Uh, that our caller's son only started asking now? Yeah, it seems like a miracle. My kids have been Um, asking for years. Yeah. Uh, So one way way that you may get around this, that some parents may get around this, you know, Diana, our caller, does not actually sound that conflicted about giving her kid a phone. She seems sort of enthusiastic about it. And if so, then just Yeah, she feels bad about foiling it. She feels that she failed because her son changed his mind. Uh, but so if you are a parent who's like – who wants your child to be able to communicate with you, for example, from home, Allison, yeah. um, or from school, for example, if your kid gets out of school earlier than you get home from work and you like them to be able to communicate with you, um, like a, any device that works on a Wi-Fi network and has texting like an, an old iPod Classic or even a like an, I, an old iPhone without um, cell service can still like – accomplish those things. Your kid can still FaceTime or text you from one of those devices um, without having a, an operating cell phone and a cell service. They can also use WhatsApp or whatever the other apps are that their peers are communicating on. Um, that's the route that we've taken with our kids, um, particularly with Lyra, who now is in middle school and middle school gets out at like two o'clock or some fucking thing. And, uh, and like, we want to be able, we want her to be able to communicate with us. And when she's home alone, we want her to be able to communicate with us. So that has been useful in, in our neighborhood. It's 11, but in general, Allison is right. Like figure out what the norm is in your neighborhood and figure out what reasonable reason and useful reason you want your kid to have a phone. How is it going to make your and your kid's life better? And then decide if it's the right time. Like, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily brain surgery. Um, and Diana, if you feel bad that you didn't get your kid a phone and you want your kid to have a phone and it's going to be useful for him to have a phone and he's responsible, give him a phone. It'll be okay. All right. If you'd like more expert advice, like the correct answer is 11, give us a call 424-255-7833. Okay. Moving on to recommendations. Allison, what do you have today? Uh, okay. We just started reading All of a Kind Family, a children's novel, part of a series of five books uh, written in – the first one was written in 1951 by Sidney Taylor, who emigrated to the States in 1900 and settled in the Lower East Side with her Jewish family. And the books are all about uh, this big, poor Jewish immigrant family of most mostly girls in downtown Manhattan at the turn of the century. And I don't know. Have you heard of these books? Uh, Lyra loved them and was obsessed with them for like a three-month period. They're great books. Okay, so they were really popular with many Jewish kids I grew up with, but for some reason we never read them in my house. And I've also read that the books were, back then, like many non-Jews' first real exposure to Jewish culture. So it's been really cool for me, personally, to get to finally read these books and to watch my boys get into them. And also, they're, I think, perfect for our time, when it's really important for our kids to understand that we were all once immigrants and, you know, to have a positive view of what that means. So... I would actually love uh, to get recommendations from listeners on more modern immigrant stories to share with my kids. So I'll start a thread on Facebook so everyone can share. Uh, That's a great recommendation. Interestingly, I also have a book that feels sort of interestingly relevant at this time. Did you, though? Uh, Or did you just feel like you had to just now think of one? 
No, no. I mean, this, I have it typed out on this sheet of paper. Okay. Uh, Allison, please. I'm, I don't pander the way you do. Uh, I'm recommending a middle grade book. Uh, it just came out this past month. It is called Gertie's Leap to Greatness. Uh, it's by Kate Beasley. It's her first novel. Um, it is about a very determined, very spunky fifth grader in a small town in Alabama who is determined to be the greatest kid in her school, but that hope is somewhat uh, thwarted or made made tougher when a new girl moves to town who is the daughter of a fancy movie director from Los Angeles who is shooting a film uh, in Alabama with a big, big movie star. Um, I really like this book for a lot of reasons. I liked it because Gertie has kind of a mean streak, which I think you don't often get to see, but in a fiction about little girls, although I find it to be true of many little girls, um, it touches on some really difficult and interesting issues about feeling unwanted by members of your family, about being a child of divorce. And it also touches in interesting ways on class. It is a very good and funny red state set story about a a very small version of a culture clash that we are all thinking about and feeling a lot right now. Uh, and it, uh, and it approaches that clash and resolves it in a way that I found as an adult reader, very satisfying. And I think that for a kid reading, it will also really, uh, it will really chime a chord in their head when they sort of, when they read the ways that these two very different girls, uh, sort of meet in the middle. It's called Gertie's Leap to Greatness. I think it'd be a great book for like a fourth or fifth grader. Um, it is by Kate Beasley and it's out now. Okay, that's our show. Remember to please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting and email us at mom and dad at slate.com. Mom and dad are fighting is part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks to our producer, Zach Dinerstein, executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, and Panoply head honcho, Andy Bowers. Also, thanks to our guests, Emily Bazelon, Dwayne Betts, and Kelly Freeman-Craig. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Allison. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and thank you all for listening. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never knew. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.